right, well, um, John's gospel. So who wrote the gospel of John? Think we should spend about four weeks studying who wrote the gospel of John? And No, we don't do that. Look, it's good enough for me. It says John, the gospel according to John. John was, um, has a very impressive resume. And I want to go with you, through with you just a little bit of John's resume as we set this up. Now, we just spent, I think, about 10 months in the book of Revelation studying prophecy and chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. So turn, if you will, I'm not kidding, and just hold one finger in Revelation 1 because I just, I just can't not ready to quite get out of it yet. There's a scene in Revelation 1 that I want to um, highlight this morning, the same one we highlighted 10 months ago, same message, some of you will remember it, little message piece, but I, I think it's really important and powerful kind of catch up right here. So John, who writes this gospel, he was one of the 12 um, apostles. When, when Jesus found him and his brother Andrew, um, they, they were very different than John becomes as he writes this gospel. This gospel is written before Revelation, somewhere between 85 and 90, and the date of the writing is, it varies a little bit by five, six years this way, that way, depending on who you read. But somewhere around um, 90 AD, John pens the gospel. Probably about 10 years later, when he wrote the book of Revelation, somewhere around 100. If Jesus died in 32, this is within 70 years, um, both books, John and Revelation of Jesus' death when these books were written. And so John, he writes in your Bible, he writes the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. Anybody take a wild stab at what else he writes? First, second, and third John. And so he writes five books in the New Testament. He was, again, one of the 12 apostles with his brother Andrew. And Jesus later nicknamed John and Andrew. What did he call them? The sons of thunder. Now, it, it, just in that alone, Jesus is jesting with his disciples. And guys, you know how it is, right? When we get together, like we make fun of each other. We tease each other. We, we do things. And, and to some degree that Jesus did that with his disciples. And I like that little insight that Jesus laughed because the whole idea of sons of thunder, it, it was in jest. It was teasing a little bit. It was kind of fun natured that he called them sons of thunder. And so what happened was they went to this particular town and Jesus was ministering. And like I shared in Capernaum, not a, not a ton of miracles happened in this town. And the people didn't receive the ministry of Jesus. And therefore, he, he didn't do many things there. So when they left, John and Andrew had a phenomenal idea. And they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we can, we can solve this. Remember that book in the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and you rained fire and brimstone down on them, and you killed them all, and you turned them into crispy critters? Let's do that in that town, Jesus. Come on. Let's watch. Let's have you just rain down fire from heaven. And so for that reason, Jesus calls them later, you sons of thunder. And, and, and John wants to have Jesus just kill all these people because turn them into crispy critters because they didn't receive when he's a young man. And then later where we find John here in the Gospel of John, and then it's specifically and in, in, in more to the point in the epistle of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, his, his new nickname, his, he's now known by, anybody want to take a crack at what John's known by as Old Man John? The Beloved, yes, because Jesus said he was loved more than the others. He was the Apostle of Love. We call him the Revelator sometimes because he wrote the book of Revelation, but he was the Apostle of Love because of his reputation for loving people. John wrote, if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you might like think you forgot to change the page because you're reading the same thing over and over and over again. And when you see it for the third, fourth, fifth time, you're like, didn't I just read that? 
No, you're not reading it for the, over the same time. You're, it's written that many times where John tells us, beloved, love one another. History has a little story about the Apostle John. And it, it, it's that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And while on Patmos, he wrote Revelation. And when he came home from the island of Patmos as a feeble old man, the churches were growing and, and the church in Ephesus and these different places. And John would make appearances on Sunday mornings to preach in these churches. And, and when the flyer went out and the announcement went out, the weeks leading up to John coming, what do you think happened the Sunday that John got there with the people? Of course, there was mass amounts of people that would show up to hear John preach. And John was scheduled in this future Sunday. And when the, when the Sunday came, the, the, the church would be packed and it would be John's turn. Worship would end and it would be John's turn to, to preach. And John would come on stage and he would look at the crowd and he would say, Beloved, love one another. And he would go sit down. That's emphasis on a sermon, boy. Some of you guys are like, Pastor, why don't you preach like that? <laughs> Beloved, love one another. And John is the apostle of love. You know, and I often remind you guys of this, that if, if as Christ followers and in studying our Bibles and worship and our church services and our progression, if what's not happening in our hearts and lives is that we're becoming um, more loving, we're, we're missing the point. We're doing something wrong. Like we do put a heavy emphasis on the teaching of the word of God and on studying, but never want to lose sight of the fact that the very call for you as a Christ follower is to love God and to love people. It's the greatest commandment, right? Jesus said, they, they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He put that above being students of the word of God and, and every other aspect of Christian, Christian living. And, and so what the gospel should be doing in our lives is making us love God more first, and then as a result of being in fellowship and walking with God in the cool of the day, what, what that does in our lives is it naturally makes us love the people that are around us and, and want to share the gospel with them and want to see them in heaven with us and want to see their lives here on earth be lived out in a better way, in a way that Jesus promises that I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. Now, um, of all the of people in human history, we can go all the way back to Adam and Eve. I like to do that, okay? But from Adam and Eve to where you sit today, there was one person in all of human history that had the most interaction with Jesus in the flesh. Anyone take a wild guess who that person was? Somebody might kind of think Paul. That's good because of how important Paul is, but Paul didn't know Jesus until after the resurrection, okay? But who was that one person, while Jesus was in skin, that had more access to Jesus than anybody since Adam and Eve to today? Mary raised him. Very good, yeah. But my, I'm going to say John, and I'll show you why. John the, the Revelator. I forgot about his mom, right? She's there 30 years. Well, let's, let's talk about, <laughs> let, let, me, let me change it then. Let, let's make it more specific. While, while, he, while he was doing his earthly ministry, during the three years of his earthly ministry, Okay, because um, John the Baptist, who is Jesus's first cousin in John chapter one, is going to say, I didn't know the guy when he came. I didn't know him, but God told me the one whom you see the spirit of God descending upon and remaining upon. That's the Messiah. But John was his first cousin. John would have been there at the bar mitzvahs and the, all the, the parties and the life. And he would have known Jesus as his cousin. Mary and Elizabeth were first cousins. But he didn't know him as the Messiah. 
So, again, let's go back to my question. Who knew Jesus more than anybody from Adam and Eve during his earthly ministry, 30 to 33? John the Apostle, right? John the Apostle laid on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. That was a unique distinction for the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus said of John the Apostle that he is loved more than the other 11. And, and we'll, un we'll unpack that another day, but that's what Jesus said. It's called the beloved disciple. He was one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus. And every time Jesus made the other nine guys stay over here, he brought three guys with him. Who are those guys? Peter, James, and John. The Mount of Transfiguration was Peter, James, and John that he brought with him. On the Garden of Gethsemane, he separated out three of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. And so Jesus, John is in that inner circle. He's laying on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. He's um, the, the one who Jesus uses to write five books in the New Testament. He sees Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other nine didn't see that. What's, what's fascinating, though, is I, I want you to see um, in, in the Bible, it's kind of theological in a way, so I want to kind of be clear here. We see these different appearances of Jesus. We see Jesus in the flesh. Isaiah tells us that while he was in the flesh, there was nothing, um, there was no comeliness about him that we should, we should adore him, we should recognize him as something different. He looked like everyday person. When, when they went to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they needed a marker to identify which one of the 12 guys, 13 guys he was, right? And so Judas did what? Kissed him to identify to the Roman soldiers who he was. Now, if Jesus was like in your books or in the Bible books or the kids' books, and he had one of those halos over his head, they could have just said, hey, get the one with the halo. If Jesus didn't, like, touch the ground when he walked, he just floated, they would have just said, hey, get the one that floats. If Jesus spoke with some kind of God voice, oh, my name is Jesus, and everybody knew, they would say, hey, just get the one with the God voice, right? If Jesus was just the most beautiful person you've ever seen, they'd say, hey, just get Rico Suave. That's, that's the one. But there was nothing about him, the Bible says, that, that, that he should separate him in, in the flesh. And so, they, so Judas had to kiss him to identify him. And John knew that Jesus. Well, then we see, we see that same Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And immediately, um, Peter, James, and John, they know that that's Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. They don't have name tags, hello, my name is. They, they, just, um, they just know, they, and they see Jesus. And, and then later in, in the Philippians in chapter 2, Jesus talks about it, or Paul talks about it, and that, that they, they got a little, like, like Nacho Libre, you know, a little taste of the glory. Well, they got a little taste of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but yet they, they don't see Jesus yet in his full glory. And then Jesus dies on the cross. Now John is one of the, um, listen to these stats for John. I wrote them down so I don't mess them up, but it says John was one of the 500 who witnessed the resurrection. He's one of the 120 in the upper room. He would have been part of the 70 that was sent out. I'm adding to his resume of why he knew Jesus more in the flesh than anybody else. He was one of the 12 apostles. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and so he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus post-resurrection. Now, in Jesus' post-resurrected body, it wasn't in flesh. He, he went into a room where the disciples were. The room was sealed, and he didn't knock on the door, and so he either went through the wall or whatever he did, but he didn't need to knock on the door or go through. He was in what's called a glorified body, but it wasn't alarming enough that, that people, even remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? 
They didn't even know who he was for part of the trip as, as he was in the glorified body, but disguised himself to some degree. What, what happened when, um, when Mary saw him? She thought he was the gardener. And then he said, Mary. And she grabbed him. Ah, Jesus! She realized who he was, and he said, woman, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. So, so we have all these different appearances of Jesus. And again, of all of them, in all of those cases, John is the one who knows Jesus the most. But yet, we see one more encounter with John the Apostle and Jesus. And that's what I want you guys to see in Revelation chapter 1 really quickly. And then we're going to get into the Gospel of John. Revelation chapter 1. The writer of Revelation is who? Is John, the same one who's writing the gospel. And in Revelation 1, he's given a, um, a, a, a revelation, an apocalypse, an unveiling of Jesus himself. So the, the, you're, it's not revelations we tease, but if you're in church and you use the term revelations, we might make fun of you because technically it's revelation. It's one revelation because it's revealing one thing, ideally. It's revealing Jesus Christ. And so we have this heavenly vision of Jesus, and John is there in chapter 1, and the guy who knew Jesus more than anybody in human history in the flesh sees Jesus. And I want you to note his reaction, because on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the upper room, um, being one of the 500, being sent out, and all of the different um, experiences that John had with Jesus, and he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus intimately. He, he knew him and was so comfortable with Jesus that he, he laid on his bosom during the Last Supper. How many of you guys got a best friend? You manly men in here. Who's your pal? Who's your buddy? Who's your homie? How many times do you lay on his chest at dinner just because you love him so much? <laughs> you don't do that? Why not? Girls, do you do that? I don't know. But that's John and Jesus. Like, they, 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 they had it rock solid. And so it, look, at, look at Revelation chapter 1. Um, I guess we'll just go right to it. Let's go to 17. And John said, and when I saw him, saw who? This is the first time John has seen Jesus. Is this the first time John has seen Jesus in his life? Okay, we've highly established that, right? Nobody else had known Jesus more intimately or personally than John. Besides Mary. Just kidding. Um, and John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Listen, this time when John sees Jesus, his reaction is, oh, he just gets on his face before him. And he sees Jesus in all of his glory this time. For the first time. He knew him. You think his reaction might have been, oh, Jesus, wow, I missed you. I love you. Here he comes. But he, John himself sees the, risen, or sees the glorified Jesus in this heavenly scene in all of his glory. And what does he do? Falls on his face. We talk about that song, I Can Only Imagine. It's a cute song. But the writer, and I love it. I love the movie. The movie made me cry. Like, it was moving. Total move of the Holy Spirit, that song, that whole movement, I can only imagine. But really, there, there's no more imagining. Like, you ain't going to dance. You, you ain't going to whatever. What does this song go? I can only imagine if I'm going to, somebody help me out here. 
stand in his presence, if we're going to dance, if we're going to, what's the other one? To my knees shall I fall. You're going to get close on that one. To your face you will fall. I'll tell you what you won't be doing. You won't be picking a bone with the good old boy upstairs. I'm a, when I get there, Lord, why is there thorns on my tomato or on my, on my, thorn, on my rose bushes? And why is there tomatoes and mosquitoes? You ain't going to be doing nothing. You ain't going to be picking no bone with nobody. When you see Jesus, Philippians tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And so I just, again, I already, I can't already preach this. I shared with you guys a little recap, something I've already shared. Because when we're in Revelation 1, I shared something really similar. But it's so good, I just wanted to share it again that, you know, of who Jesus is and when John sees him in his glory, what's it going to be like when we see those eyes of fire? When we see Jesus in heaven in all of his glory. And it wasn't revealed. Jesus just didn't reveal it. I can remember being in Bible college and a young pastor, and I was listening to John Corson, and he was talking about this idea of different um, forms or appearances or, or resurrected bodies that Jesus had. And I was like, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. It was twisted to me. It was heresy. I was like, what is he talking about? But, you know, it took a long time to kind of get an idea. And I still don't. I wish I could go back and catch that message. I don't know where it's at. But this is the idea that you do see in your Bibles where there are these different um, appearances and, and forms of Jesus and his resurrected self. And different things he did. And, you know, the one that John saw in heaven, if Jesus showed up, like, on the road to Emmaus or appeared to the 500 in that form, everybody just been laying on the ground all over the place. It would have just been everywhere he went, everybody just would have fell on their face and been stuck, and nothing would have got done. Because when you see Jesus, you're going to get on your face before him. I can, I can only imagine what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. You're going to fall on your face. Amen? So we have this John. Now, um, maybe I can do, I don't know. So we're going to try to get through 14 verses today. So real quickly, um, gospel setup. Each gospel in your Bible is a little bit different. The first three gospels, we call those the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. Lots of miracles, lots of things. And then John's gospel is kind of a set alone. It's, it, it deals with something different. God had designed, and, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, in each of the Gospels to, to focus on a different emphasis of who Jesus was, right? And so in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as a lion and, and highlighted many times in Matthew's Gospels the fact that Jesus was a king. And then in Mark's Gospel, he's portrayed as an ox and highlighted many times in Mark's Gospel is the fact that Jesus came as a servant. So we see him as a king, a lion king in Matthew, an ox, a servant in Mark. In Luke's gospel, he's portrayed in his humanity. You know, one of the things Luke records about Jesus having to sleep, having to go to the bathroom, being hungry, being thirsty. And so you see his humanity um, on display in Luke's gospel because its emphasis is that Jesus is um, fully human and, and the son of man. And then in John's gospel, it's portrayed as an eagle. Because in John's gospel, he's trying to portray Jesus in his deity as God. And so um, at the very last verse of John, I don't know why he tells us to the very end of his book, but he tells you why he writes. And in John chapter 20 and verse 30, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his, of, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and then in believing you may have life in his name. And so he wrote so that you might believe in Jesus as God, in the Son of God. So in um, John's gospel, he, he's the deity. Now, there's no genealogy, there's no baptism, there's no childhood, there's no manger scene, there's no parables, um, there's no demoniacs, there's only eight miracles recorded in John's gospel. Six of those eight are not recorded in the synoptic gospels, they're unique to John's gospel. Um, he wrote that we might believe in the deity. We have the seven I am statements, um, famous defining who Jesus is in the gospel of John. We'll get to those as we go through this. Um, we have the incarnation in one verse. In Luke's gospel, the story of Jesus' incarnation is um, chapters and 2,500 words in John's gospel in one verse. So very different. We're going to just move right into um, the life of Jesus here in John's gospel as it stands by itself. So let's take a look at the deity of Jesus in this um, very first verse of the gospel of John. You guys ready? John 1.1. 1, 1. You're like, yes, we've been ready for 25 minutes for you to read a verse. I read a verse. I read Revelation 17, verse Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen, amen. Hey, this is a memory verse in your Bible, folks. Highlight it. Write it down. If you believe in Jesus, uh, according to 1 Chrysalonians, you have to have this verse rem remembered and memorized and put to memory, okay? That's also found in First and Second Opinions, my opinions. Um, it's important. It's a good one. It's an easy one, too. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Um, so, and then the other thing I'll tell you, too, there's lots of talk about different Bible translations and which ones are good and which ones are not. And for the most part, there's an easy test right away. If you get a Bible and you're not sure, open it up to John 1.1. 1, 1. Because what happens here is there's some, some Bibles, and they add one letter to this verse, and it changes the entire meaning of the verse. And it's it, then you know if you read John one one in one of those Bibles, and if John one one is or John one one is messed up, don't use that Bible, don't read that Bible, don't trust that Bible. It's a cult Bible, okay. And the one word they add is there at the end, and it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word where our Bibles say, and the Word was God." They add the letter A, and it completely changes the meaning. And the Word was a God, meaning not the God and not the God and the creator of heaven that we're about to read about, that he's just one of many gods. Because in the Jehovah Witnesses and other, and other religions and cults, they don't believe in the deity of Christ. I'll tell you, I, I personally don't believe, is my opinion, again, this is another second opinions verse, um, I, I don't believe there's a real intellectual debate about the deity of Christ. I don't think that if you read your Bible, um, that, that you'll have any kind of intellectual hang-up because it's out there. I remember being in Bible college and learning of this um, debate and discussion and studying it and thinking, you know, I would read a verse and it would in New Testament somewhere and it would be pretty clear to me that that verse was saying Jesus is God. And then I would like write it down. I would highlight it. I would try to keep like notes. And then as I was reading somewhere else and studying somewhere else, I would come to another verse in the Bible in the New Testament somewhere. And it was very clear that it was saying Jesus was God. And I was like, man, I got to remember these. So if I get in this debate, I can show these verses. And what happened was over the years, I ran into so many verses and ideas in the New Testament that so clearly claim that Jesus is God, that, that really you don't have to ignore a verse. You have to ignore so many verses in your New Testament to, to believe or, or to want to say that Jesus is not God 
and that he's not deity. To the point where I, I honestly don't believe it's, a, it's an honest intellectual argument if we're just reading the New Testament on face value. Because it's very clear. It's very clear many, many times over in your Bible that Jesus is God. And we're going to see tons of them here in the Gospel of John. Again, they're all over. Too many to even, you know, try to highlight them. And we will go as we go through them. But here we have, in the beginning was the Word. Now that beginning is like before time began, beginning. So it's almost very identical to Genesis. In the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. This is, where does God come from? Where does where, what, what is the beginning? It's like hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea like, well, where did God come from? And what came before that? And, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Same problems that, you know, we have the same problem the atheists have. They say, or if you if you believe in a, um, an evolution or that everything came from nothing. And so you could say, well, there was a big bang. And so we ask the question, well, the material and the, the things that started and created the big bang, where did those things come from? And then those things that created that, where did they come from and how did they get here? And eventually they just say, well, it always was and everything came from nothing. And, and then, and then we, we kind of assume an intellectual superiority at this time, but we really don't have it because we have the same problem. We believe that in the beginning God, and they say, well, where did God come from? Well, both we, we believe by faith in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And they believe by faith that all things came from nothing. So to me it's just a lot easier to believe in God that all life and and that all th not only did all life come from nothing but then they found a partner and they reproduced like themselves and um you know that that's much harder to believe but they're both religions evolution is a state ran ran religion and they both require faith but it's just so much easier to believe that in the beginning god in the beginning god created so here we have in the beginning um, in that time before there was, and then Jesus tells us, and the Bible tells us, Jesus says of himself in Revelation that he has no beginning and no end, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And, and so that's the beginning here, way back before there was ever a world, an earth, anything. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Was the Word created by God? Really important, you guys. Was the Word created by God? No, it was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, not created by God in any sense of the form. And we're going to learn later who the Word is. Just spoiler alert, read verse 14, because John's going to tell you exactly what we're talking about in verse 1. It says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who became flesh and dwelt among us? It's very clear who we're talking about in verse 1, that the Word of God is Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we put our hands on Him. Matter of fact, I put my head on His bosom at the Last Supper. We beheld Him. We spent time with Him. That, that the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh in the Incarnation, and we beheld his glory. Amen? So no, no question of who Jesus was, not created by God, with God in the beginning. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. Through who? Through Jesus. Okay? So, so if, if Jesus is the son of God in a way that he's created by God, then, then he couldn't be there at creation and all things can't be made through him. So now we have Jesus as God himself and creator of all things. And then in Colossians, it even goes a little further in this vein that all things were created by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, 
Um, and so here we have him as um, the word. We have him as creator, God, creator. And now we're going to go on to life and light. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he's creator God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word life is in Hebrew is Zoe. It's kind of a popular girl's name. Any Zoe's in here today? By any chance? No? No Zoe's? Middle name maybe Zoe's? <laughs> the, the, the word Zoe means life, and it's not just like the physical life that we have here. Jesus said, um, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly, that, that, that the joy of life, that who you are as a Christ follower, that you experience not just your breath, but the life of God that lives in you, that, that enhances your life, that fills you, that brings you joy, that gives you love, that makes you who you are. That's this word Zoe in the Greek, this word life. And it says, in him was that life. And the life was the light of men. So Jesus now here in these first four verses, he's God, he's creator, he's life, and he's light. What does light do in your life? It, it shows the way, right? It illuminates. It, 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 if you're in a forest and it's dark and you have a light, you don't hit your head on a branch and trip and fall. And, and you make your way through life in the forest with the light. The Bible says in Psalms that God's word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet to guide and lead me through this life. And in verse 5, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God. Now we're switching verses, switching here in verse 6 to talking about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So you guys might hear me use this term, J the B. That means John the Baptist. Um, so J the B. Um, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might do what? Verse 7. Believe. So that's that's the, the emphasis of John's gospel. You know, it's it's um, I always encourage folks if they're newly saved to start in the gospel of John. There's, um, you know, gospel of Luke is a good start too. anywhere in the New Testament is actually a good start if you keep going. But I, I do encourage folks that are new in, the, in their faith and their walk to read through the gospel of John for that reason. And then it says in verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent over to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Who's he talking about there in verse 11? About Israel, right? Jews, Hebrews, that he came to his own. He was born a Hebrew. And that his own did not receive him. So um, in verse 12, he says, but as many received him to them, everybody say to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. So now we have this recorded witness um, in, in verses 6 through 13, John the Baptist saying who Jesus is and that he's come to bring light into the world. And that he came and his own didn't his own did not know him. And then in verse um, 12, there's kind of an important kind of theological point that's made in verse 12. And he says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. You know, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. And I want to be careful. But, you know, oftentimes the world says people say that, oh, aren't we all just the children of God? And usually when people say that, the reason I guess why it becomes a pet peeve for me is because they kind of come from that like Unitarian um, philosophy when they're saying that. 
um, coexist idea, you know, where we all just coexist and we're all just the children of God. And well, well technically, theologically, we're, we're not all the children of God. That's not true. Now, I want, I want to be careful, right? Because in John 3, 16, probably the most well-known and important verse in your Bible, it says that for God so loved the whole world, the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves the whole world. The love of God is over every human being that lives on planet Earth. But the truth is, you're not a child of God. You are not a child of God because you're alive. He loves you, and he's given you the right to become a child of God. But there's a responsibility first on your part to receive the adoption that he wants to put over your life. And we're not just children of God. Look, look at what it says. Tell me if I'm making this up. In verse 12, but as many as receive him, as many as receive Jesus, to them he's given the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So if you call yourself, oh, we're all just children of God, then in essence you're saying, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because you have to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior to, be, to become a child of God, a true child of the, of the one true living God. Amen? Amen. And so there is a distinction. Again, when, when those folks say, oh, we're all just the children of God. No, you're not. Okay, pet peeve, rant over. I say, he still loves you. Everybody else might think you're a jerk, but he still loves you. And then in verse 13, it says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, basically, this is talking about verse 13 being born again in the spirit. And so he clarifies here verse 12. So he gives you verse 12 that not everybody is a child of God. That's a choice that you have. Now, now here, let me encourage you with this. Let me say this about that. That listen, you've all been welcomed and invited, and there's been an amazing price of God paid for your sins to become a child of God. But it's a choice that you make. And if you want that choice, if you want to become a child of God, you just receive Jesus. Because it says, receive and believe in that verse, in verse 11, or verse 12, to those who receive and believe in the Lord. And then in verse 13, he tells us, he, he qualifies what he's talking about. I'm not talking about flesh and blood. We're going to get to in a couple weeks in John chapter 3, again, one of the most important chapters in our Bible. And Jesus is going to use these terms two times in this chapter of chapter 3. You must be born again. You must be born again. Listen, if Jesus says to you, must, your antennas have to go up because the God of heaven, the creator of all things, as we just studied, says you must do something in your life to go to heaven. I, I hope your antennas go up and you pay attention. And he says you must be born again. And, and so this is this spiritual birth. He says that you're already born in the flesh, but your spirit is not born. Listen, and Jesus doesn't send anybody to hell. You know, if your friends are saying that, I don't serve a God who sends anybody to hell, Jesus doesn't send anybody to hell. Jesus is in the business of redirecting traffic. He laid his life down so you don't have to go to hell. He doesn't have to send you to hell. The Bible says if you're, you're born into sin, you're condemned already. That Jesus is there to save you and to forgive you and to heal you and to love you and, and to wash your sins away and pave the way and redirect traffic. He doesn't have to send anybody there. And so, um, I'm wrapping up here in a minute. Who were born, I said verse, we get through 14 verses and we got really close. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if he's not talking about being born of flesh and blood or the will of man, but of God, 
he's talking about being born again spiritually. And then again, that's all going to be defined for us. It's all going to be um, unpacked when we get to John chapter 3, exactly what that means, how we become born again, being born in the spirit, receiving Jesus. It, it's, it's already alluded to here many times. Then in verse um, 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is um, what, what kind of fancy Christian word is the incarnation. That The incarnation means that Jesus wasn't, didn't begin, he didn't start, he wasn't born in a manger in Bethlehem as his beginning. That he pre-existed that for all of eternity. As long as there was a time before time began, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when he, when he took on flesh, that term is called incarnation. That's when he was incarnated. So, um, you know, like I said, in Luke's gospel, he spends chapters on the development and the incarnation of Jesus. Here in John's gospel, we just get this one verse. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten son. And so this is, you know, the, the, the gospel really is, is, is in this verse. It says that he who knew no sin tells us another place in the Bible, he who knew no sin, another Bible memory verse according to 1 Thessalonians that you should have, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So good, so powerful. It says in another place in the same vein, he who was poor or he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. So this is what Jesus did. He took on flesh, he became poor, he incarnated, he lived a sinless life, perfect Jewish boy for 30 years, became a rabbi at 30, lived three years in public life, and public ministry. He died on a cross and he rose again the third day. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, I've highlighted this again many times. But think about the verse where it says that he who was rich became poor so that you might become rich. Rich in salvation, rich in life. That what Jesus did for you in his incarnation. He's the, he's the God of heaven. He's the king of heaven. How many of you guys at any point in your life, maybe just you're at a lower place in life now, but at one time in your life you, had like a, you were like a king of heaven? Anybody? Like you had this kingdom and maybe some of you men think that's like that in your house. You know, you walk down the hallway and your wife sees you and she stops. Oh, my God. Damn. Holy, holy, holy. Handsome, handsome, handsome. And every time your kids see you, they just bow down and, in your house. Anybody have you guys? No? <laughs> yeah. It's more like when your wife sees you walking down the hall, she's like, take the trash out already, you know? That's more life. Just kidding. But um, Jesus is the God of heaven. That's what it's like for him. It says the angels, when they see him in heaven, they spontaneously break up into worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And everywhere Jesus goes, they see that John of Revelation 1.17. They see that Jesus of Revelation 1.17 that John saw. And as John fell on his face, they fell on his face. Everywhere that Jesus goes in his kingdom, he's the God of heaven. He's in all of his glory. He's that rich. He's that good. He's that powerful. And it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Who does that? Only the God of heaven. Only Jesus for you because he loves you that much. 
and, and he wants you to be a child of God. He, he, he wants to give you the right to become a child of God. Let's have the worship team come up. We, um, we have that opportunity, every one of us in here. It's a free invitation of God's grace extended to you. And it's overwhelming to think what Jesus did and just how good he is to provide a way of salvation for you. And yet you just receive it by faith. And I know for some of us that just feels like not enough. Like, man, there's something that, that we got to do. It just can't be that easy. Well, listen, the beginning is that easy. Once, once you become a Christ follower, there's a lot more to do after that. You'll have plenty of work to do and plenty of responsibility. There's no bait and switch. There's a cost to discipleship. But you've got to start somewhere becoming a disciple of Christ. And we want to give every person in this room that opportunity this morning as we, uh, the worship team is going to close us in a song. We want to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a child of God. Jesus says to those who receive and believe to them, I've given the right to become the children of God, to become born again, to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if that's you today, let's stand together as a church. If that's you in here today, I want to pray for you. You know, Jesus never called anybody privately. Everybody Jesus ever called, he called them publicly. The Bible says in Romans that I'm unashamed, unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation to those who believe. And so there's no room for, you know, secret salvation and, and just something, you know, it, it needs to be public. But um, that, that's between you and God in your heart as you start this process, right? That, that, that you have the opportunity to say yes in your heart. And only, I'm not going to know. The people around you aren't going to know. How can that be public? You could, we can make you come forward. We could have you stand and while everybody else sits, raise your hand and, and make it public because Jesus never called anybody privately. Everybody had to make a public declaration of faith in your Bible. But ultimately, that public declaration can and does begin in our hearts because only God knows if you're saying yes. When I was in eighth grade, I had a pastor, uh, a youth pastor, who, who I'd been going to his youth group for a while, took me out privately, and he asked me a question. He said, he said Chris, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? And I thought about it, and I'd spent two years with this guy, and I said to him, yes, I do. And he said, I want, I want to pray this prayer with you. Same prayer I'm about to pray with you guys. And I prayed it, and guess what happened in my life? Nothing. Why? It was public. We were in a public place. There was people all around, and him and I are praying in the middle of this restaurant. And, but I didn't mean it in my heart. I didn't surrender my heart. I remember praying the words, but I was yet to, to really surrender my life to God. I was afraid. There was things I wanted to hold back. There was, um, to be honest, at, at, as an eighth grader, there were sins that I thought I had to give up if I wanted to be a Christ follower. And listen, God doesn't ask you to give up your sins to become a Christ follower. He says, I'll receive you just as you are. And then he'll begin to change those sins and take those sins and help you work through those, those areas of your life that he needs work through. But there has to be a beginning. And that beginning is you saying and meaning it when you say, yes, Lord, I receive Jesus. I give you my life. To receive and believe means that, there, that it's real in your heart. And it's a decision. There's no half step and there's no... Um, partial seekers. You don't get to come part way to God. God's not interested in a casual seeker. You have to be willing and be in a place in your heart, and the Holy Spirit will bring you to that place where you're ready and willing to say fully committed and fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, yes. Amen? So if that's you today, and you're in that place, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, I want to lead you in a prayer. 
prayer of surrender. It's a place of beginning. When, you, when you're done with this prayer and you say amen, that's not the end. Lots more involved in it, okay? There's a major cost of, of discipleship. Jesus said, count the cost. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And that's God's heart for you is to give you a fresh life, is to give you a, a new hope, a future, and a hope. He loves you so much that he, he'll take better care of you, I promise, than you've ever taken care of yourself. Give yourself to him. Don't hold anything back because you're worried about it. Give it to him because he's going to take way better care of it. Jesus said if you, if you gain the whole world, now that word is cosmos, the stars, the moon, everything in it, and lose your soul, you made a bad deal. Give it to him. He's got something better for you. Amen? So I'd ask you guys to pray with me. If you want to surrender your heart and life to Jesus, I ask the rest of the church to be praying as well and to pray out loud with us. And then when we're done, um, Josh is going to be up front. Dave and Shannon will be up front. Pastors and leaders will be up front. If you'd like individual prayer, if you did pray that prayer for the first time, um, you need a Bible, you, you just need prayer, come and let us know. And then the prayer room is also going to be open. When you, when you leave out of this sanctuary, if you make a right, you're in the parking lot. If you make a left, there's some folks back there that can talk to you, can counsel with you, can pray with you, can encourage you. And maybe that's a better setting for you. Um, and, and you're welcome to do that as well. So let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I surrender my heart. I say yes to Jesus 100%. I hold nothing back. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent of my sin. I turn my life to you. I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. If you like individual prayer,